You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Festivals and Their Meaning. This is the 21st lecture in the series, the 5th lecture in the Ascension and Pentecost section, and it is entitled Whitsun, the Festival of United Soul Endeavor, given in Cologne on the 7th of June, 1908. The spiritual evolution of mankind, for which we strive, must bring us into a living connection with the whole surrounding world. A great deal of what surrounds us, for which our forefathers still felt awe and wonder, now strikes many people as dead and prosaic. There is, for example, a widespread feeling of alienation toward our seasonal festivals. The urban population in particular has largely lost sight of the significance of Christmas, Easter, and Whitsun. People no longer feel connected, as in earlier times, with the mighty content of the festivals, nor have any insight into what these reflect of the great realities of the spiritual world. Nowadays, people feel cold and prosaic toward Christmas, Easter, and especially Whitsun. The pouring down of the Spirit has become for many a mere abstraction, which will only regain truth and life when people develop a truly spiritual knowledge about the whole world. Much is said nowadays about the forces of nature, but very little about the beings behind these forces. Our forefathers spoke of gnomes, undines, sylphs, and salamanders, but to see any reality in such ideas is regarded today as old-fashioned superstition. It does not matter much in itself what theories people hold, but when their theories blind them to certain realities, when they begin to apply these theories in practical life, this becomes a more serious matter. When people say that their ancestors' belief in gnomes, undines, sylphs, salamanders, and the like was all nonsense, one feels like replying, quote, Well, go and ask the bees. Close quote. If bees could speak, they would tell us that the sylphs are no superstition. Bees know what they owe to them. Anyone whose spiritual eyes are open can find out what force draws the bee toward the flowers. Natural instinct, in quotes, is an empty phrase. Actual beings, which our ancestors called sylphs, are active in bee swarms and lead the bees to blossom to seek sustenance. It is especially where the different kingdoms of nature come into contact with each other that various different kinds of elemental beings reveal themselves. Within the bowels of the earth, where rock and veins of metal ore meet, at a spring where moss spreads upon stone so that plant and mineral kingdoms come into contact, or where plant and animal meet, for example, at the entry of the bee into the flower, also where the human being and the animal encounter each other. But in the latter case, Such beings do not appear in the mundane encounters of everyday life, as when a butcher slaughters an ox or someone eats meat. 
They appear rather when two realms meet in an excess and outpouring of life forces. They arise particularly when someone has the kind of relationship to animals which strongly engages his thoughts and feelings. A shepherd, for example, may have such a special feeling relationship with his sheep. Connections of this sort were very frequent in earlier times. They resembled the relationship which an Arab has to his horse, as opposed to that of a racing stable owner. When such soul forces play over from one realm into the other, as they do between the shepherd and his lambs, or when the effusions of smell and taste stream from the flowers toward the bees, certain beings find an opportunity to incarnate. The spiritual investigator perceives a small aura around the edge of blossoms when the bees thrust their way into them and suck. The bee in the flower becomes a medium of taste and streams out a kind of flower aura which nourishes the sylphs. In the same way the salamanders are nourished by the feelings weaving between shepherd and sheep. The question why there are beings just here and nowhere else does not arise for anyone who understands the spiritual world. We should not inquire into cause and origin which are simply given by the universe. If opportunities are provided to nourish such beings when they appear, when, for example, human beings allow evil thoughts to stream out from themselves, certain elemental beings are drawn into their aura, for they find nourishment there. The opportunity is given for various different spiritual beings to manifest wherever different kingdoms of nature overlap. When a miner hacks away to reach the metal in rocks, the clairvoyant can see remarkable beings, compressed as though cowering together in a tiny space, then scattering, spraying in all directions when the earth covering is removed. These are beings in some ways not so dissimilar to man himself. True, they have no physical body, but they have the power of reason. It is reason, though, without responsibility. When they play some mischievous prank on a human being, they do not have any feeling of doing wrong. These beings are called gnomes. Many different kinds inhabit the earth, dwelling wherever metal meets stone. There was a time when they did people good service, as in the early days of metal mining, the way to lay out a mine, the knowledge of how the strata ran, where to find the richest seams, was learned from such beings. Mankind will land itself in a blind alley if it fails to work together with these spiritual beings and relies only upon physical senses. We need to learn from them particular methods and processes for investigating the earth. In the same way undines, beings united with the watery element, arise wherever water flows over stone. The sylphs, bound up with the element of air, arise where plant and animal meet. They lead the bees to flowers. Everything science has to say about the life of bees is riddled with error from beginning to end, and nowadays the beekeepers are often misled by it. Much could be learned from the sylphs, for science has shown itself to be useless in this respect. We need to return to the old knowledge and practices, which derive from traditions whose origin is forgotten, from times in which people were still guided by the spiritual world. 
People unbeknown to themselves are also familiar with salamanders. Whenever they feel a thought surfacing from an unknown source, it is usually as a result of the salamanders. When someone relates to animals in the way the shepherd does to his sheep, he receives knowledge from the beings around him. The salamanders whisper it to him. Ancient knowledge about these things has today vanished and can only be regained through properly tested occult perception. If we think further about it, we must realize that we are wholly surrounded by spiritual beings. Each breath of wind, every draft of air, is more than mere chemical substance. It is also the revelation of such beings who encircle and permeate us. If we are not in the future to suffer a very sad and constricting fate, we must know what lives in our proximity. We cannot progress without such knowledge. We must ask ourselves how these beings arise and where they come from. Such a question will help us begin to understand how certain harmful and evil elements can be transformed and made good through the wiser guidance of higher worlds. Take manure or dung as an example, which is discarded, excreted, yet it has a beneficial effect if we make good use of it as the basis for new plant growth. Things which have seemingly been left behind by evolving life can be retrieved and transformed by higher powers. This is very much the case with those beings we have been speaking of. Let us look closely at the way they come into existence. Salamanders are beings which need a certain kind of relationship between man and animal. Human beings alone, of all creatures on earth, possess an ego enclosed within themselves. Animals, on the other hand, have a group ego or group soul. This means that all the animals of, of a particular species share a common ego between them. All individual lions, for example, are part of one group ego, as are all tigers or all pike. The animals have their ego in the astral world. It is as if someone stood behind a wall in which were ten holes and pushed his ten fingers through. One would not be able to see him, but could reasonably draw the conclusion that the ten fingers all belong to one hidden motivating force. It is the same with the group ego. The individual animals are simply the limbs of what dwells in the astral world. These animal egos are different from the human eye, although comparable from a spiritual point of view. An animal group ego is an extremely wise entity, far wiser than the individual soul of a human being. Just think of certain species of bird, of the wisdom inherent in the height and direction of their flight, which allows them to leave winter behind them and to return in spring by a different route. We can recognize the wise influence of the group ego in their flight. The same wisdom is to be found everywhere in the animal kingdom. Human beings are very short-sighted and self-centered in their descriptions of mankind's progress. In your school days, you may well have learned about the innovations and impulses for a modern age, which gradually emerged during the Middle Ages. Of course, one must recognize the significant developments which arose at that time, the discovery of America, the invention of gunpowder and printing, and also of making paper. It was, of course, a significant development when paper replaced the use of parchment. Yet, 
The group soul of the wasps had already achieved this thousands of years before. The wasp nest is made of the very same kind of material as paper manufactured by human beings. Only gradually will man come to discover that certain configurations of his spirit are connected with what the group souls have worked and woven into the world. These group souls are in continual movement. The clairvoyant can see a constant flickering along the length of the spine of animals. It is as if the spine is embedded in this dancing, flickering light. Innumerable currents of force which encircle the earth in all directions, somewhat like the trade winds, pulse through the animals, flow around their spinal cord and influence them. The animal group souls pass in continual circulatory movement at all heights and in all directions around the earth. They are most wise, but they lack one thing. They know nothing of what we call love. Love is only united with wisdom in the human ego. Each individual animal knows love in the form of sexual and parental love. In the animal, love is individualized, but the wisdom of the group ego is without love. The human being unites love and wisdom, whereas in the animal they are separate. It has love in its physical existence and wisdom in the astral realm. We can learn an enormous amount by understanding such things. But our modern human ego only develops slowly. In former times we also had a group soul from which the individual soul gradually emerged. Let us trace back human evolution to ancient Atlantis, a continent which is now submerged under the Atlantic Ocean. In those days the great Siberian plains were covered by wide seas. The Mediterranean had quite different shores, and in Europe there were also large expanses of sea. The further we look back into this ancient Atlantean epoch, the greater differences do we find in the conditions and nature of human life, for example, in both the waking and sleeping state. When the human being sleeps nowadays, his physical and etheric bodies remain in the bed. His consciousness grows dim and dark, or becomes black, silent, and still. In the Atlantean epoch, the distinction between sleeping and waking was not yet so pronounced. While awake, the human being did not as yet see the forms and colors of objects in such clear, defined focus. When he awoke in the morning, his perception was as though enveloped in mist. It was similar to our experience of seeing lights surrounded by a misty aura in fog. But in sleep his consciousness was not extinguished. Then he saw the spiritual realm. As the human being evolved, the physical world grew more focused and sharply defined for him. But at the same time his powers of clairvoyant vision faded away. The spiritual world became darker and dimmer as the physical world became clear and bright. All myths and sagas are handed down from a time when human beings could still perceive the astral world. When they ascended to spiritual vision, they encountered Wotan, Baldur, Thor, Loki, and other beings who were not physically embodied on earth. All mythology is composed of memories of such vision which since those times has faded away altogether. The human being of that ancient epoch descended into his physical body each morning and felt separate and single. 
But when he returned each night to the world of spirit, he returned also to a unity and wholeness of which he was a part, a great company to which he belonged. Tacitus relates that the old tribes and peoples, such as the Herulians and Cheruscans, were more aware of being part of their group than of being individual people. These feelings of belonging to a tribe gave rise to traditions such as blood feuds or vendettas. The whole people formed a body which belonged to the unifying group soul. Everything happens gradually in evolution. Slowly an individual consciousness developed out of this group soul. In accounts from the time of the patriarchs, we can find traces of the transition from the group soul to the individual soul. Before the time of Noah, memory was of a quite different nature. It was not confined within the boundaries of a single life, but reached back to encompass the lives of father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and so on. In those of one blood, memory streamed back to long-gone generations. Nowadays, the authorities wish to know the name of each individual. But in the days when people remembered what their father or grandfather had done, a common name united all who shared the same blood and memory, such as Adam or Noah. These names did not refer to the life of an individual, but to the stream of memory of whole groups and tribes, which extended far beyond the lives of individual members. And now let us compare the anthropoid apes with man. What difference is there between them? The vital difference is that the apes have a group soul, whereas man has an individualized soul, or at least the basic prerequisite for developing it. The ape group soul, though, is in a rather different situation from that of other animals. Let us imagine the earth, above which the group souls of the animals float in the astral world as though in a kind of cloud. And let us compare, for example, the lion group soul with that of the apes. Each lion is a single limb or member of the group soul which lives within it. When a lion dies, its outer physical body is sloughed off from the group soul, rather like the fingernail from a human being. The group soul takes back into itself what belongs to it and pours it out again at the birth of a new lion. It remains above in the astral world, and sends out its being to be embodied in physical forms, which are then sloughed off and replaced. The animal group soul, therefore, knows neither birth nor death. Only the individual animal appears on earth and dies away, while the group soul continually receives back into itself the forces it sends out. This is not so in the case of the apes. In some kinds of animal, part of the group soul is separated off, so that it cannot return. When an ape dies, the essential part of its being does return to the group soul, but a portion that has, as it were, become too compacted is severed and cannot rejoin it. The group souls of all species of ape have this characteristic, as do certain amphibious creatures, such as some kinds of bird and the kangaroo in particular. What is detached in this way from the group soul of warm-blooded animals, remains and becomes an elemental being, the salamander. Such nature beings are, as it were, the waste products of higher worlds and are taken into the service of higher beings. Left to themselves, they would cause disturbances in the cosmos. 
therefore the wisdom of higher beings makes use of them. Sylphs, for example, are used to lead the bees toward flowers. The legions of elemental beings are guided by a higher wisdom, so that the harm they might do is transformed into good. This all takes place in the realms below the human domain. Yet it can also happen that the human being detaches himself from the group soul, is severed from it as he becomes an individualized soul, and can then develop no further. While he remained united with the group soul, he was guided by higher powers. Now he is thrown back upon his own resources. If he does not find access to the necessary spiritual knowledge, he is then in danger of wholly isolating himself. What can protect us from such spiritual isolation, from wandering aimlessly in the absence of the group soul's spiritual guidance? Let us be quite clear that the process of human individualization will become ever more apparent and that in future people must increasingly relate to each other through their own free will. The old connections between people on the basis of blood, lineage and race will soon be quite obsolete. All the tendencies are for the human being to become more and more individual. Yet, the only possible way forward is one that ultimately leads back. Imagine a situation on earth in which human beings all wish to go their own way and find their own direction from within, so as to become more and more distant and separate from one another. There would be a danger of fragmentation and isolation. People nowadays have already become wary of what might unify them spiritually. Today almost everyone has their own religion, their own opinion is of paramount importance. Yet if people look inward, look closely at their ideals, they will find that they are in harmony with those of others. We can, for example, inwardly recognize that three times three equals nine, or that the three angles of a triangle add up to 180 degrees. Those are a matter of inner knowledge, about which we do not need to dispute, which unite everybody. All spiritual truths are also of this kind. The science of the Spirit teaches things which each person can discover through his own inner effort. They lead him to complete agreement, peace and harmony with all others. If there are two conflicting opinions about a truth, then one of them must be false. It must be our ideal to reach deeper and deeper within ourselves, for in so doing we find unity and peace. To begin with, there existed a human group soul. Gradually, mankind was freed from it. But as we continue to evolve, we must have before us an ideal goal toward which we strive. When people are united in higher wisdom, when communities based on natural ties give way to ones arising through free will, a group soul descends once more from higher worlds. The aim of those who guide our spiritual scientific movement is for us to find through it a community in which human hearts can flow out toward the sources of wisdom as the plants flow out toward sunlight. Where separate egos are united by a common truth, the higher group soul can descend. If together we turn our hearts toward a higher wisdom, 
The group soul can anchor and embody itself in the environment we prepare for it. Earthly life will be enriched when human beings make it possible for spiritual beings to descend from higher worlds, which is the aim and ideal of the spiritual scientific movement. This living spiritual ideal was once revealed to mankind in a mighty and majestic form, whose overwhelming power can show us how we can endeavor to help the unifying spirit incarnate amongst us through the unity of our souls. The event of Whitsun, in which a number of human beings met together with common purpose and were fired by a single feeling of the deepest love and devotion, stands before us as a great symbol and sign. The souls of these human beings were united in shock by the same shattering event. The unified stream of this one emotion allowed a higher entity, a uniting soul, to descend and reveal itself. This is made clear by the words which describe the coming of the Holy Spirit, the higher group soul, which divided itself and settled upon each one in the form of fiery tongues. That is the great symbol and ideal for the future of humanity. If human beings had not found access to such an idea, they would eventually become elemental beings. Humanity must now try to create vessels in which the beings of higher worlds can pour themselves. The Easter event gave mankind the strength to internalize these mighty ideals and to strive for unity of spirit. The festival of Whitsun is the fruit born from the ripening of this strength. The flowing of souls toward a unifying wisdom should continuously create a living connection with the powers and beings of higher worlds and with the Whitsun festival itself, which is nowadays thought to be of so little importance. The science of the Spirit will renew its significance for human beings when people know what the descent of the Holy Spirit means for the future of humanity, a new life will be breathed into the Whitsun Festival. It will then no longer be merely a remembrance of the events in Jerusalem. It will become the ongoing festival of common soul endeavor. It will become the symbol and ideal of a future Whitsun Fellowship, in which human beings will be joined together in truth, so that higher beings can incarnate amongst them. The extent to which the earth can in the future fulfill itself and such ideals exert an influence in human life depends on human beings themselves. If mankind endeavors to unite itself in this way with the truth, higher spirits will descend and unite with mankind. The end of Lecture 21